Victorian Periodical Parade. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Victorian Periodical Parade. Today, we have PhD Daniel Casper with us to talk about the nuances of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, written by Robert Stevenson. And Daniel, do you prefer Danny or Dr. Danny? Daniel. Daniel. You don't have to call me doctor. <laughs> okay. Yep. Yep. And that's that stuff I asked Kari too, you know, and I was like, where do I put it? And uh, it's slightly weird even now to have students call me doctor, although yeah. I do, but it's still weird. Do you ever go by professor? Professor is slightly less weird because I was, you know, in grad school, I was professor before I was a doctor. So, but back yeah, yeah. then I just, I just had them call me by my last name because I was not a mister nor a doctor. That was, it was still, I was 22. That was weird. Yeah. The whole thing it's was like, weird. whoa, whoa, no mister, please. Come on. Just yeah, please don't do Curtis, that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cause on Twitter, you're ghosting Danny. Yep. And, um, <laughs> Dr. Shiny got. Yeah, Dr. Shiny Goth. Yep, that's where I was, like, confused. When I, um, I like, met a bunch of people last week for the first time who I've known on Twitter forever and just got recognized as Dr. Shiny Goth for the first time in my life, and that was very weird. Yeah, I can believe it. That's the eyeshadow. The shiny part is the eyeshadow or the goth part? Both parts. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Yep, I I was thinking so. Something similar like that. Cool. Well, with that slant of goth being uh-huh. in the title and everything is that like part of your preferred era of victorian studies it is i okay. am actually an expert in all of the gothic so i like to say 1785 to present but it's, okay. it's more like 1785 to 1985. yes oh what happened in 1985. i stopped i got started getting bored with the literature oh okay. the, the <laughs> I, literature that came out yeah. in 1986. Yeah, that starts, that covers up to Stephen King and Toni Morrison and Anne Rice. And then after that, I'm like, oh, I don't know anything about the 90s. No, thank you. <laughs> okay. Well, as long as it's, you know, on your resume and, and stuff Maybe. and you're like, I'm done. Yes. And everybody has to have their limit. And uh, I know there's just, there's only so many things that you can read. Yeah. Like so, 250 years. That's yeah. not much. Not much. <laughs> uh, Almost enough that I can say something useful. Almost. <laughs> That's great. So the Gothic, yeah. So Jekyll and Hyde is one of my favorites. I'm actually going to be teaching it this fall. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. So I'm teaching a class called, I have to remember it this way. So it's, it's vampires, zombies, ghosts, and werewolves. And so it's, we're going to do all, a lot of them from the Victorian era, but from other countries and other eras. Nice. So we've got some King Arthur epics. We've got Chinese supernatural tales. We've got... A really cool Russian Jewish play, and then Jekyll and Hyde is, according to Stephen King, at least, a werewolf story. And then, so we're going to oh, talk about yeah. it as a werewolf story. Yeah, uh, that makes sense because it's a a, a a person transforming mm-hmm. into something else, and it's a rather bestial thing. Exactly. Even though it's he yeah, he, but... he doesn't grow. Well, he does grow more hair. But he does. He's hairier. Yeah. He's, yeah, not, he's, he's not wolfy, that's the yeah. thing. He's yeah, not that's specifically the only... wolfy. Yeah. But, yeah, you can you can allude mm-hmm. right up to the werewolf thing. Yeah, and there's a lot of... So in the late Victorian period, there was a lot... After Charles Darwin publishes his theory of evolution, and yeah. we start being worried about unevolving, like going back down the evolutionary ladder, 
which isn't really a thing. Like Darwin oh, no. didn't think Darwin didn't think of an evolutionary ladder. That's not Darwin. That's a bunch of other, I will say, racist Victorians who thought that they were the king of the mountain. Yeah. So, oh, but yeah. there's in addition to Jekyll and Hyde, there's a bunch of other narratives at the end of the 19th century about like devolving and becoming more bestial and less human being. And so Hyde is of a of a piece with that that kind of uh, horror narrative. Nice. So, you know, Hyde gets, like, literally Hyde gets younger, Hyde got more hair, Hyde's stronger, Hyde's all these other things that make him he's more ape-like, really, than yeah, Jekyll yeah. is. And that's part of what's happening in that story. Yeah, exactly, because he, he wanted, there were there was a point where he was talking about his youth mm-hmm. um, and, and finding it, or at least gallivanting as if he were a youth. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah. What I find really amusing is that Dr. Jekyll's imaginary version of himself as evil is really boring. Yes. Like, it's the kind of stuff, it's, he really just wants to go sow some wild oats, like be 25 and drunk all the time. Mm-hmm. And then once Hyde gets out, Hyde has a much more expansive view of what evil is. And so yeah. you start, I think Jekyll talks about like practicing the facilities of evil or practicing the facilities yep. of good. And once Hyde gets out and starts practicing evil, he gets better and better at evil, and therefore becomes more and more evil. Oh, that's a that's a really good thing. It is true. You, if you do a bad thing and it like helps you or gets you your re- reward or whatever, you might do it again, and then you yes. can get a better reward. And yeah. So there's so there's a basic element of psychology going on yes. in there. Yes. And it's also, there's also a very, it's also a very Christian sort of understanding about morality. So Jekyll's imagined bad thing is that he's going to have a bunch of expensive fabrics and a nice apartment, <laughs> like spend money on himself, which is just sort of this like in luxuriate in your own greed kind of thing. Yeah. But once you start luxuriating in your own greed, anything is possible. You can be yeah. slightly worse than that and slightly worse than that until suddenly you beat the man to death. The yeah. Slippery slope thing that's happening. Oh man, and and that uh, that scene is really gruesomely described. It is because and and it really it starts the whole thing off with like the full bout mm-hmm. of evil, and it's like, oh well, that's bad. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So that moment is very much okay. So like Jekyll and Hyde is how do I put this. The Victorians had a very clear distinction between good art and bad art. They had high art, low art, popular yes, yep. stuff, and like fancy stuff. So like this is the opera is the highest form of art. And then what Jekyll and Hyde is, is a shilling shocker, like a penny dreadful. A penny dreadful, yep. <laughs> you pay a small amount of money, and the one friend that you have who can read properly reads it out loud to everybody around you, like at the pub or, you know, in the street even. Mm-hmm. And so while those sorts of short stories are happening, a bunch of other sort of periodicals, as yep. we talk about, of murder stories, but they're always like written in the most gruesome possible way. They're they're really just sort of to excite you rather than they're, they're lurid, sort of sensationalized versions of stories. So there were before the Jack the Ripper phenomenon, but that is the same sort of storytelling that's happening when Jack was being that poor man to death. Yeah. Yeah, I like the Shilling Shocker title. I don't think I'd heard that yet, but the Penny Dreadful I've heard, and I, I never really liked it. Like, Dreadful, uh, 
also well you know you you were saying that it's it's the lowest level of art and so right. it was kind of it feels to me like it was describing the art as well as maybe the art was talking about dreadful circumstances but a shilling shocker is like it's going to shock you yeah. but it's you know it, it doesn't feel to me anywhere near as you know talking down about right derogatory Der yeah derogatory towards the the writing for sure so that so you picked right up on it. The Penny Dreadful is not named by the people who write them. Like no. the Penny Dreadful is named by people who don't want people to read them. So that's what. Like, so it was fully Anglican, right. Anglican preachers are calling them Penny Dreadfuls as a way of like stopping people from buying them, uh, but it just makes them more popular because well, now right. they have now there's a genre name that you can be like you can sell Penny Dreadfuls. You can tell people that's what they are and they know what that means. And you can even like um, sneak them. Too. Yeah, exactly. They're kind of they're kind of illicit. They're kind of, they're also really disposable. So like, yeah. sort of, you, you pay a penny, which isn't very, I mean, you know, was more then than it is now, but it wasn't much. And then you get a week's worth of entertainment out of it and then it falls apart and you buy a new one. Yep. And so there are other, there are other sorts of ways of monetizing storytelling in the 19th century. So Dickens does something very similar with his, you know, serialized narratives you buy piece at a time right and then uh -huh. but for dickens what you would do is you buy the, all of them and then you have them bound you'd go to a bookseller and have them turn it into a nice book okay. uh, for the penny dreadful no. yeah it's the, the paper it's is not worth it good enough yeah. quality no so okay. it's the same thing with um pulp fiction so like pulp fiction literally named for the paper that's yeah pulped. so it's that kind of very disposable very they're trashy and trash and that's sort of the yeah point. okay yeah, because I've, I've, like, the movie Pulp Fiction in, in the 90s, mm -hmm. I was familiar with it, and I was yeah. familiar with making pulp paper uh, right. as a kid in art class. And I'm like, this is garbage paper. Yeah. Why? Yeah. And then, so, yeah, so now to know, get full circle and be like, okay, mm -hmm. so Penny Dreadful, Pulp Fiction, and Pulp Fiction, is that a Victorian-era phrase as so, well? Pulp Fiction is only after the Victorian era, um, but it fulfills the same sort of social... Yeah need like this the desire to have something really exciting to spend your time like before before television television before television yeah uh, okay. so to do so yeah okay. so and the, the same they're basically the the penny dreadfuls are printed on the same material that the periodicals would have been so very much like a magazine more okay. than it is okay. anything else so it's not it's not something that you hang on to which is why they're they're <laughs> they're really ironically quite expensive today because there aren't very many left because they yeah. got thrown out yeah. So anyway, so Jekyll and Hyde is not quite that low, but is also is also not very high, like on the on the Victorian art scale. And then yes, of course, okay. but of course, it's incredibly popular. It's like one of the most popular yeah. stories of the 19th century. Yep. So obvious, so popular that we know what Jekyll and Hyde means. It became part of the lexicon, mm -hmm. so that if you read it now, and it's a it's a mystery story. It is a like a case like you're supposed yes. to try and work out what's happening but we already know what the twist ending is going to yeah. be so like it's a very weird book to read knowing what the ending is going to be yeah yeah but in reading the full original text you meet friends and players yeah with dr jekyll and you get more of his backstory mm -hmm. i've talked with other people about dr jekyll and mr hyde where nowadays all you know is that 
Dr. Jekyll made the serum and he can just immediately transform into Hyde and use that power. Like in the movies. Right. Yes. League of, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, he yeah. takes the potion and instead of getting smaller and stronger, he becomes huge and stronger, right. which is one of those things where I'm like, they wanted a visual shocker. Right. Which I don't really get because a smaller... Like, if you have a skinny guy, uh, if you have a skinny person who's wearing the, the three-piece suit mm-hmm. in, a, in a film, and then they take the potion, and then they get smaller and stronger, and then yeah. the a- anger comes out, like, through through their personality, I feel like that could be even more powerful, because now, you know, except he's probably not punching through walls like they did oh. in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. <laughs> but, probably not. But you know, the and thing that's is... So that's that's part of what makes Hyde into like a, a devolutionary state. So like he's an orangutan basically, or yes. a, a chimpanzee, who are smaller than human beings, but much much stronger. Yes. Because they've got much denser muscle mass than we do. Yes. So by like making him into a monkey in the in the book, we're we're playing on those sorts of fears about like losing our humanity, and also like on, on one on one hand. The Victorians might have actually been more, like the average Victorian might have been more familiar with how chimpanzees interact than we are because the zoos would have been much more popular. You would have had much yeah. more, more often seen them in the circus than we do now. Yeah, the so circus, would, traveling circus. Yeah. yeah, they would have had more t- opportunities to interact with wildlife in a weird way than we do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because they weren't worried about being cruel to them, so they would just yes. be cruel to them. And there might uh, be just an orangutan in some some mm-hmm. Victorian wealthy person's house. Exactly, like, you could just yeah, own it. You could just own yeah. a monkey, and hopefully, hopefully, it doesn't kill you. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully, exactly. Hopefully, it's not the murder to the room morgue sort of situation. But that did happen. Those are sorts yeah. of there are stories about that, and hard to tell again if those stories are true. Because they're the true crime sensationalized things, or they're, you know, sort of playing up on this idea that exists in popular culture rather than, you know, strictly speaking, accurate. Yeah. And that the great thing about the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Jekyll and Hyde, is that the reason Hyde's bigger is that he's gotten more practice. So there you go. So the reason yeah. so in that in that version of it, like rather than killing himself, Jekyll just disappears. Hyde like yeah. takes over and um, gets stronger and bigger as he gets more practice being outside of uh, Jekyll, yeah. which is true to sort of true to the logic of it the is, strange yeah. cases because Hyde does seem to be growing, does seem to get bigger slightly. Yeah, over or, the or at least stronger for sure. And yes. there was a point the first time he had paler, he had a darker complexion, but it wasn't healthy looking. Right, and so it's like. So the first time Jekyll said that he had divested himself from his evil side, and so Mm -hmm. it was a smaller. Yeah. He expected it to be smaller, and so he was like, "Oh yeah, that yeah, that makes sense." That makes sense. Ah, Yeah. (laughs) So that that is great with the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, where oh, instead of killing himself, he vanishes. Jekyll knew that like he vanished, but he. There was, there was a line in, in the movie where it sounded like he had hoped that Hyde would be useful for something in the future. And, and so it's yeah. okay. So this is kind of all right. I don't get I don't give Henry Jekyll a whole lot of credit because one, 
You've oh, got money. Yeah. You've got money. You can just go get an apartment. You don't have to. Yeah. You don't, you don't have, have to, to change. Your, you don't have to hide it like this. Not like this, anyway. Yeah. Um, but his idea isn't so much to like find the true evil of the human being and get rid of it or whatever. It's a it's a psychological experiment. Like he's attempting to sort of pull out the idea that human beings are more complicated, maybe have multiple facets to their personality. And what he says in the book is that he's not good enough at it yet to do more than just the two. Yes. But he thinks that with you know practice and scientific experimentation you might be able to pull out other facets of things oh yeah so, I... so, so like every mad scientist he had a really good idea and went at it in the absolute worst possible way because he went after the evil yes like if he had gone after some other facet you he might know, not have gone so badly well he might not have felt like killing himself yes that's true and he might yeah <laughs> so oh man good yeah stuff. yeah it's great like yeah, I remember the dichotomy of two, mm -hmm. and um, I think I mean, it... And it clearly struck a chord, like so much yes. so that we talk about Jekyll and Hyde all the time. Like it is very clearly a, um, a, a thing that resonates with people, and it especially resonated with Victorians in a very serious way. So the thing about Jekyll's house is a reflection yeah. of Victorian sort of public and private facing understanding. So. In a very real way, like there's the public side of the human being with the front door where you knock and you have to present your card and the butler answers and asks if you're, <laughs> there's this great moment where the butler asks, I will see if he's at home or says, I will see if he's at home. The butler knows he's home. But the, the thing is like when the Victorians say that, they, the butler has to go in and say, do you want to see this person or not? And it's a little polite fiction to say, you are welcome in my public home, public parlor or not yep. meanwhile in the back door around the street and it's such that i can't remember mr utterson's cousin says that he doesn't even recognize that they're the same building because of the yes. weird maze thing that's being built yeah i was but, like why can't you tell that the street over is <laughs> and it's because uh, london is a maze like it's impossible to navigate properly okay so jekyll can leave what the back door whenever he wants and Hyde can enter the back door whenever he wants. And so like, there's no, there's none of that, none of the gates and doors to sort of keep yeah. the public out from the backside. So that's the problem that the Victorians are sort of obsessed with this sort of hypocrisy that is sort of embedded in the idea of a public-private divide because there is no public-private divide. There's just you, you are a person who exists in both places. So that becomes really fraught because there are things that you do in private that you wouldn't want to admit that you do in public. Mm -hmm. And does that are those private parts of you also you? That's, yeah. the, that's the question that sort of Jekyll is attempting to try and work out in a very crude chemistry sort of way. Yeah, yeah. It's the societal pressures of saying uh -huh. these things are bad, these things yes. are evil, just never do them. Right. You know? And it's like, well, you know, <laughs> there are things that like he was just saying, lavish lifestyle, drinking right. more heavily and yeah, staying up all night. women? Was staying, it, no, no, no. No okay, women. That was just a full <laughs> evil. Okay. There, oh, no women. Yeah. There are no women in this story. There's a little girl who gets run over, but everybody yeah. else is, there's all dudes in this story and a very well, specific reason. Well, there's, no, there's the, um, the housekeeper. Oh yeah, the maid. Yeah. The, but she's like, you know, yeah, paragraph. She's, but like, uh, there are so, there are so many men yes. in this story. Yeah. So one of the possible readings of it is, so the thing that Utterson is afraid of, actually, 
is that Hyde and Jekyll have been having sex this whole time. And so Hyde can blackmail Jekyll for money because one of the things that the Victorians said you can do in private as long as it's not public knowledge is have, you know, gay sex. And so, and, and Utterson is almost totally convinced that Jekyll has set Hyde up like as his mistress. Because that's sort of yes. from the outside what it appears to be. He's got yeah. an apartment for him. He can, he can have as much money as he wants. He can come in to my house in the back door, whereas Utterson, who's Jekyll's good friend, has to come to the front door, has to, can't go in the back. Yeah. And so one of those concerns, this is the point of the Victorian era where homosexuality has always been illegal or has been for thousands of years. But now it's becoming a much more concerted effort to find and um, remove homosexuals from society because partly because of darwin partly because like that the worry that this was a kind of devolution and also because for the sort of the first time after the industrial revolution there's this idea that society is anonymous for the first time sort of in human history when we were living on little farms in farming communities everybody knew who everybody was so there wasn't any hiding anything and now that we're in a big city, now that we have, you know, millions of people in London, you can go around the corner, literally, and become a different person. And there's no way of checking that. There's no way of making sure that you're not doing bad things. Yep. So one of the bad things is, like, if you go to the east side, you can be you can be a homosexual on the east side. You just can't do it on the west side, in the, in the good part now. <sighs> yeah. It, that's the thing. And that sort of, the homosexual reading is sort of, uh, embedded in various other places in the, in the story. So there's Mr. Addison and yep. his cousin who have this weird walk thing that they yes. do every day. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't know what they're actually doing, but it's probably not just taking a walk. Right. Yeah, because it was, it was weird. Jekyll was like kind of referring to his familiar, to, to Utterson's friend as like not necessarily family, but mm-hmm. yeah. close like family. And yeah. Exactly. So that's happening. That was confusing. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's the bit, their mutual friend, Utterson and Jekyll's school friend. I think it starts with an L. I never remember these people's names because they're all sort of, thing is, they're all sort of like interchangeable characters. Yeah. So he's the one who Jekyll shows the transformation transformation. and then freaks out about. So that that moment in the uh, story where you see something that you really shouldn't be seeing, like you walk in on somebody doing something that they shouldn't be and then you freak out and you're no longer friends that has a whole bunch of like out of the closet homosexual stuff like i'm literally hide is hiding in a closet like it's not it's not not very hard to sort of no you're right extrapolate on to these sorts of things yes once you learn about the times Mm -hmm. and like more of the the way things were hidden and the way things were written and the way people would talk about it it's Mm -hmm. like oh of course the pieces fit so similarly exactly yeah. So that's similar to, there's another reading where you could say, oh, the potion is just a drug. Like it's just opium. Yep. Because opium dens were all over the place in Victorian London. And there's even other narr- other stories, like there's a Sherlock Holmes story where yeah. uh, Watson has to go pull a man out of an opium den because they're hopelessly addicted to poppy seeds, basically. Yep. And what happens is if you what happens if you take a drug that makes you into a bad person like is it the the drug itself that's making you a bad person and that therefore that needs to be sort of regulated and gotten rid of so there's a lot of arguments about this is the first time we started talking about whether or not we should ban drugs Mm. 
because they were legal. Like cocaine was legal, opium was legal, uh, laudanum. Anything that you could really get a really big high on, you could just go buy from the pharmacy. They would just give it to you. And doctors um, were also trying to prescribe it to yeah. like tell people that they would get better from it. Yeah. And cocaine gets okay. you up off the couch, you know? It does. Cocaine yeah. is cocaine is surprisingly good at treating depression. It just is worse than having depression for you. Because the crash <laughs> Yeah, it's much worse. Is worse. So you can so you can read Jekyll as addicted to this drug. Yep. Even like even the um, bit where he's off the drug for a month and then has a relapse. You can read yeah. an addiction story on top of that because that's what happens. That's what happens with opium is if you go off it for a little while and then you forget how bad it was and you remember the good part yeah. and then you do it again and you're more addicted than ever at that point yeah. because it um, it takes much more to much more opium to actually have the same effect and therefore your body becomes dependent on it and it's again the kind of thing that Victorians were really deeply ashamed of in their own behavior and they were worried about hypocrisy of other people doing it because again if you start doing one bad thing you can eventually get to doing other bad things so yeah so all the stuff all the social problems that we see attached to drugs were the same problems victorians were seeing attached to drugs and they had the same solution which is just say no yeah just not get rid of it it's which not is not like, really a solution to the no. problem but it feels like it is feels like it would work if we did it that way it's the easiest thing to do because you yeah. say it's you say no one can have it and yeah. it's just like it just should just go away yeah and then that's not, not how that works to. no yeah they're like saying yes you can't have this anymore oh and then the people who kind of wanted it or had it a little bit, or like, well, now I have to get more, and I actually have to hide more at my house. Yeah, I have and to like can have keep more. Secret. Yeah, and it's the and, it's the same thing. Because we have the identical drug policy to the Victorians in America, so like they, they spend, you know, your entire childhood, they tell you that marijuana is really bad for you, yeah. <laughs> and then you try it the first time, and you're like, this was fine, yeah. and then and then you start to suspect that all the other drugs that they're telling you are bad for you are not as bad as they had said, and that becomes a problem because some of yeah. them actually are quite bad for you yeah. that trust mm -hmm. just goes away after you have a good the first good time mm -hmm. you know and then which and is unfortunately so... with so many bad drugs the first time is okay but then you're hooked and you yeah. need that second time exactly and then you're so that's what that's what jekyll and hyde are experiencing so the first yes. time you do a little evil yeah. It felt good. And then you start running over young children and beating people to death. <laughs> so that's the that's the logic of the story. Yeah. There's yeah. the thing is the, the the Victorians have the are the first sort of group of people to create a thing that we might call a social policy. Like to have laws designed yeah. to make a society cleaner, healthier, happier. Those we didn't have laws before the Victorian period to do that. So if you look this is a very broad example but if you look at all of the laws that queen elizabeth put down like the yep. first they're like only people of this class can wear this color or this material fabric so you had yeah, to be a you had to be a count or higher to wear purple or something like yes. that mm -hmm. or you had to be like you have to eat fish four days a week everybody has to eat fish four days a week yeah. so there's stuff there's sumptuary laws there's stuff about food and clothing they aren't really about behavior in any real way not what we right. think of as behavior Yes, is what you're doing is, yeah. Yeah, and again, that's because in Elizabeth's time, there's a much smaller population of people. Like, regulating 
uh, the behavior of a civilized society is much simpler when there's a lot fewer people to have to regulate. And so then when you get to the Victorian period, you have to start thinking, okay, everyone's anonymous now. It's impossible for us to go into everybody's house and make sure that they're wearing the correct clothing or eating the right amount of fish. So what can we control? What are the kinds of things that we can make happen? So you start seeing banning drugs. You start seeing um, prostitution, prostitutes getting rounded up and treated um, rather shabbily because it's believed that they're the reason that the the, the Navy is all syphilitic. You start having curfews. So you're like, you're not allowed to be out at, at night anymore. So anybody who's out at night is obviously a criminal. So you, you start rounding up. You said sending people to poorhouses. It's like you don't have a job. You obviously don't have any money. We're going to put you in prison, essentially, for being poor, so that you're not on the street bothering the wealthy people. Yeah. And so all of these sort of social policies that we inherited, basically, that we sort of like have fiddled with around the edges, but we still sort of maintain in a long way, are a Victorian invention. And they're because people are worried that Jekyll, the or all the things that Jekyll represents are hiding all the things that Hyde represents. Yes. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and that's that's another reason why I like the story is because mm-hmm. if you read anything below just the surface, it's so complex. Yes. Like he's talking about a lot of stuff, and um, the one thing that I was wondering about is the mental stability of Jekyll. You know, like what kinds of psychological things were going on that would bring him to make this drug. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of went away from his scientific mad genius plot, and I was like, I wonder. Yeah. He's obviously older, so yeah. he must be having a midlife crisis or Maybe, yeah, midlife crisis is the way of thinking you know? about it. It's like, right? what's going on at home, Jekyll? Yeah. How's your home life like? Well, kind of boring, sounds like. Mm-hmm. And he seems really lonely in a very serious way. So like, he's good friends with Utterson, but he's off friends with his other chemistry people. Yeah, He spends most of his time with his servants. And I mean, those are people who are around, but you couldn't, you know, hang out with them. It wasn't, it wasn't a, the class divide doesn't allow you to actually socialize with them in a real way. So maybe he's just lonely. Maybe he needs an excuse to get out of the house. And this is (laughs) the fastest, easiest way of doing that. So the thing is about, servants in the victorian era is you can't be collegial with them like the class divide won't allow you to be friends you're not friends yeah so even though like there's a whole bunch of loyalty from his butler and he has been working for him for several decades that's not the same thing as having somebody in the house that you can hang out with yeah that you're like hanging out with yeah Yeah. and so that they're very the victorians are very class conscious in that sense so you can be quite lonely even if you're in a house full of people, like it, it will make you actually feel really isolated, especially if your friends are not trusting the kinds of things that you're doing. So yeah. everyone's a little suspicious of what Jekyll's been up to lately. So he might not have as many people to talk to, but when he's hide, he can just leave. He gets to leave the house and go out and do whatever he wants. And so that's, there's a whole lot of freedom in that, which can be quite appealing if, if you otherwise feel quite trapped. There is one other way of reading it, which is that none of this has happened. Right. Where... Go ahead. That sounds exciting. So the only evidence we have of the transformation that happens yes. is the letters at the, the last two chapters. Yep. So there's the third friend. He says that he saw something. 
mm-hmm. he tells Iderson, I'm not going to I'm not gonna have anything to do with that man anymore because of what I saw. Mm-hmm. Now what he saw, we don't actually know because we weren't there. And so Utterson's not there. So the narrator has, doesn't actually see anything happen. And then we have Jekyll's suicide note, which if he's crazy, is not actually a useful thing to be thinking about. So he might just be crazy. He might just be making it up so that he can avoid the fact that he's been sleeping with this gentleman called Hyde. Like Hyde clearly exists, but that's not the same thing as saying Hyde and Jekyll are exactly the same person. Yeah. Hyde might just be a really short, ugly guy. Sure. Or he's got a code name for him. Or yeah, yeah exactly. All these exactly. other things. Yeah. So there's a there's some plausible deniability in the possibility that actually a person took a potion and then physically changed yes. form. Yep, yep. And then the ending where he's locked himself into a closet because he thinks he's transformed might just be a mental breakdown rather than anything else. Yeah. Cause when Utterson finally broke in the door to uh-huh. his study, did he say he found Hyde on the floor or Jekyll? Jekyll. Jack it it was Jekyll, okay. Yeah, so it's Jekyll as you know, as you expect him to find it. Yes. So it's not as if it's not the werewolf transformation where you see the wolf literally turn into a man. So that doesn't happen. Or even the um, werewolf dead on the floor. Exactly. In the man's house. Yeah. Right. So what is happening is still ambiguous. It's up in the air. Like, obviously, as a gothic person, I'm like, yeah, definitely supernatural stuff happens. That's fine. But it, it didn't need to be. And so that's part of the allegorical aspect of the story is that this supernatural or, you know, preternatural, quasi-natural thing could be happening. But there's the, the reason it maps on to so many other social issues is that that becomes, that can be metaphorical. It doesn't have to be a literal transformation. Just now, I was wondering if there was a possibility that Jekyll and the man he killed were dating, and then, like, at some point, there was bribery or blackmail, and then Jekyll was like, nope, you're not doing that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, there's a, there's a, we don't know. Here's, again, the only thing we know about Jekyll and Hyde is from Jekyll, so, like, what Jekyll has to tell us, but we already know that Jekyll lies about stuff. Like, <laughs> uh, when he's talking to Utterson, he's definitely lying about his relationship with Hyde, regardless yes. of what that relationship actually yeah. is. Whatever it is, yeah. Whatever it is. So we can't trust him. So we don't actually know what his sort of experience with Hyde actually is. So there's definitely, uh, in the you know in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen one, they can talk to each other. Yes, well, can, in the mirror. Can, yeah, in the mirror. Yeah. Can this Jekyll and Hyde talk to each other? Do they communicate it at all like is Hyde the little um attack dog version of Jekyll who comes out when Jekyll gets angry is this the is this the, the Hulk sort of moment yeah because you know the Incredible Hulk is also based on the Jekyll and Hyde man yes so like if that's the case is Hyde cleaning up loose ends with Jekyll's boyfriends by taking him out possible for sure Again, there aren't, there don't seem to be many women around yep, <laughs> this yep. part of London. Mm-hmm. If we wanted to be, if we wanted to start being really suspicious about queerness, we could find it pretty quickly. Yeah. And so it's striking that Hyde's victim seems to know who he is, like yes. recognizes him. So Hyde, and then Hyde just like kills him, like doesn't yeah. seem to be provoked into doing it. So was that an attempt at picking him up? Was that a flirtation that started the? Was it a gay panic moment? Hard to say because again we weren't there and we don't we don't actually get to hear the interiority yes. of 
hide, but the potential is still there. And understanding it in that way sort of strengthens other ways of reading the story. Yeah. Yep. The complexity is just, Mm -hmm. and like every reader can grab a detail that they associate with or completely hate or whichever, you know, and anyone can read the book how they want. Exactly. So that's what makes it, that's what makes it an allegory in a real way is that it is sort of endlessly mappable onto other problems. Yeah. And that's why, that's why it's never been, it's never been out of print and it's always been incredibly popular. (laughs) Like, like immediately the next year it was on the stage, like they adapted it. Oh really? Okay. I didn't hear that or I didn't know about that. Yes. So there was, that's apparently a really phenomenal acting job because the transformation scene would have been Victorian stagecraft. Yeah. There wasn't going to be CGI and there was no sort of monster makeup effects available because you had to be able to swap back and forth on the stage. Yes. Yep. So it's not particularly complicated. Yep. A very tall, strapping Jekyll would like shrink down and become a little ape-like hide right in front of people and people yep. would freak out. Like they were, it would be horrifying to watch on people would there were again this is hard to say how much of this is sensationalized but there are reports of people fainting mm-hmm. screaming mm-hmm. vomiting in response to what was happening on the stage oh okay okay and even uh, even to the point where i have to double check this i'm pretty sure at some point the public thought that the actor playing jekyll and hyde was also jack the ripper because they thought oh, oh if he can pre- present this evil externally like this he must also be evil on the inside because the victorians were just obsessed with that sort of interior becoming exterior problem like obviously a good person looks pretty and obviously a bad person looks evil uh, and there's nothing and there's no way of for victorians to question this logic like they just cannot see outside of this so that's why what's fascinating about hyde as a character is that everybody who sees him sees him as evil and ugly but none of them can actually point out any element of his face or any disfigurement or any other thing that says this is the thing that makes him look ugly yeah it seems to have a really boring face Mm -hmm. that it also looks evil um i mean and jekyll you know jekyll recognizes his own face in Hyde at least a little bit or says he does so he can't be but no one also no one recognizes Jekyll and Hyde no one sees Hyde and immediately thinks that looks like Jekyll's little brother or whatever so what Hyde looks like is sort of an open question too because he's never really described except as sort of emanating this evil soul that he has inside him yeah yeah and that it's a fascinating sort of thing for the Victorians to worry about facial features so they phlebotomy like the study of this hip of the skull as a way of telling character they were certain that this was a thing they were certain that the shape of your skull dictated the shape of your brain and therefore dictated who you were as a person they were certain of this yeah and that's this is darwin again because darwin because skulls and skeletons are really the only sort of thing that you can study of prehistoric creatures right so it's the only anatomy that we have left so he studied they did a lot of skull studies and trying to work out from and this is a the really racist way of doing this and comparing it to white skulls versus black skulls versus Asian skulls and trying to trying to figure out how the skull shape like dictated specific sorts of things. So they're worried about facial features a lot. And then in, in this one or in the Victorian era? In the Victorian era in general. Yeah, and okay, then okay. this one is playing with that idea because of our inability to describe what's happening with Hyde's face. The other thing is 
Jekyll's like laboratory is an anatomy theater. It's a surgeon theater. So what he's done is he's taken what used to be a place where you would do surgery and literally people would watch surgery happen where the study of anatomy was done in the Victorian period. So we're starting to figure out where all the bones are kind of thing. I turned it into this chemical laboratory because he's not actually an anatomist, but his chemicals are about the shape of the body, like fundamentally altering how the body works, right? That's a big one. That's Isn't a, it? Yeah. So again, I, I'd easily thrown away little detail, yeah. but it's one of the ones that echoes throughout what's happening concurrently in the Victorian period. And if you follow it far enough, you can get to some crazy places. Yeah. Like a couple of decades later, actually, but around the same time, we're trying to find the criminal type. We're trying to find what the face of a criminal is. So they're certain that a burglar has some sort of physical feature that dictates, that would prove that he's a burglar. So if you saw him on the street, you'd be like, that's a burglar. That's a murderer. That's a forger. And, and so that's they a take, baker. And yeah, that's a exactly. Yeah. Sort of like categorizing people. And so Lombard, I think it's Lombard, he takes a bunch of photos of convicted criminals. Mm -hmm. It is if I process them together so if I double expose them so that I can put two people's face in one picture and I do that a lot of times what I will figure out is all murderers have bushy eyebrows or everybody's eyes are too close together or whatever and then what he finds out is as he does this is that the pictures of these disgraced criminals who are you know not the most handsome looking of men become more and more attractive the more average they are so the more pictures you stack on top of each other, the more, the prettier the face becomes. And so the Victorians had to discover that beauty is about being the most average looking person. So, so in order to be beautiful, you have to have nothing unique about you at all. Yeah. <laughs> Which is crazy like a, to me. A huge shift at one point? Yes. So there's like this understanding, we obviously missed, the idea didn't work. Like there's yeah. no such thing as a murderer's eyebrow. That's not a thing. But this this understanding that the ideal human being becoming the average human being is, is again part of Darwinism and also interesting to think about in terms of Hyde, who we don't have any sort of description of. He is the average looking person who's also just emanating evil. So you can't describe him because he doesn't have any, he doesn't have any features that stand out except that people hate him when they see him. Yeah. Anyway, and so that's one of those, pulled one little thread and went off on that for, I don't even know how long the last time I studied this, this novel. Gosh. Yeah, that's just insane. I'll have to look up that researcher and, and, and find him because that yeah. is intense to like. It is. It's weird too that they were taking people who they thought were evil uh -huh. or yeah evil and, and burglars or criminals and stacking their faces up and uh -huh. it converged into average and that became the ideal look for a good person it's more like the more you did it the prettier the face would become so they assumed that they would get uglier for whatever that means so the, yeah exactly you know, and then it became prettier and prettier and prettier. And then they realized that prettiness isn't about something specifically striking. It's about not being striking. It's about being average looking. And that's what beauty is. And that's got a lot of really interesting problems with Darwinism, like this theory of evolution, because Darwin doesn't believe in the survival of the fittest. That's, I think it's Aldous Huxley. So it's one of Darwin's friends, but not Darwin. Okay. Darwin's idea is that in order to succeed, 
all an organism has to do is have kids. Like the only thing you have to do is breed once, actually twice, to make sure that you and your mate are replaced. And so in order to do that properly, you just have to be attractive to the other, the other, you know, the other sex. And so the most attractive figure, the most attractive organism is the one that looks most like the ideal. Yeah. And it turns out the ideal human being is really average looking. So the ideal bulldog has specific features that have to be followed and there's a, you know, a breed standard. Well, those breed standards are an invention of the Victorian period. Like they designed those things. So we're trying, we're trying at this point in history to create a breed standard for human beings, which is where we get into eugenics and then we start, and then Nazism and all of those. Sorts of things. We can yeah. start to say, here's what the ideal person looks like. It, Anyone who doesn't look like this is not ideal and therefore we have to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing that Hyde sort of represents is this, Jekyll represents a sort of ideal that yeah. the Victorians were holding out. And Hyde represents this sort of freedom escape from this ideal because it's actually yeah. quite claustrophobic to be like, this is how you have to be. You have to be exactly like this. Because you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do that. But it's like, well, I don't know. Somebody <laughs> what am I doing? What am I doing? Yeah. What's the point of being here if I can't do any of these things? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's claustrophobic that. definitely sounds, sounds right. Yeah. But like really restraining, really unnecessarily uncomfortable in order to maintain social order like this the ideal version of uh the empire as the white men on top and everything else flowing from from them and so you have to in order to keep the oh like this is an awful thing in order to keep india in line england has to be very strong and britain has to be really powerful and so therefore all the british none of the british can be degenerate druggy dealing homosexuals that's bad oh yeah, it's just, yeah, it's like, it's like, what is strength? And they define it, and then they define all these things that it's not, and it's like... Yeah, and if you're well, not... Something went wrong. If you're missing part of, if you're missing any single one of those things, then you lose social power, social power. You can be, they wouldn't necessarily, like, kick you out of the country sort of deal, but you wouldn't be invited to people's houses, you wouldn't be allowed into society. There are whole bunches of hidden social rules that you had to follow perfectly, Otherwise, people would, like, exclude you from stuff, and that would therefore become, you could get into social ruin. And it's much easier for, like, women and people of color and queers to fall into social ruin because you can get the things that their rules are much more strictly confined. But even to, even Jekyll has rules he has to follow or they will stop talking to him, which is what happens in the story. Like, they stop talking to him because, because of his weird experiments. Yeah, it, that were evil, and that's what he was going for, was mm-hmm. to allow himself to practice some evil. Yeah, what is evil? Like, that's the question yeah, that that's it asks. the other thing, yeah. yeah. Victorians had a very specific definition of evil that probably you and I would not, not only would we not agree, we probably wouldn't even really quite comprehend exactly what they it's... meant by it. Yeah, exactly. So again, Jekyll imagines evil as really nice, fine fabrics, like, yeah. enjoying, like, sensual fun things to touch kind of thing because a victorian is supposed to be sober and kind of average but not striking kind of average not striking really ordinary looking Mm -hmm. not not spending a whole lot of money (laughs) sober upright judge and he's a doctor too so he's got to have a specific sort of gravitas about him the whole time yeah it's the same thing with utterson's a lawyer Yep. And so he has a sort of the same sort of problem. So he's a bourgeois middle class 
upper middle class sort of person, has access to wealth, all these other things. And the thing that drives him crazy about Jekyll is the will. Like Jekyll's will is what makes him insane. Utterson, it's the thing that bothers him because yeah, the yeah. will is so strange. Foreign, yeah. Yeah, it's a foreign thing because, and this is, this is the thing to point out, Jekyll doesn't have any children or a wife. So Jekyll doesn't have anyone to leave anything to. Mm-hmm. And so who he's meant to leave this to is really unclear. It would not necessarily be obvious to whom the will should be applied. Oh, and the yes, same thing with, yeah, so who, who's Jekyll's heir? Well, Jekyll doesn't have one. So why not give it to his friend, Mr. Hyde, who yeah. he's clearly on intimate terms with him. Why not just give him the money? Well, if you do, then you're implying a whole bunch of other kinds of things. Like you leave your stuff to your spouse. Well, that makes Hyde his spouse. Yes. And that's not a thing that upright, sober Victorian men are supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And so it's that there's a, there's a, it's propriety is the problem that Jekyll is trying to escape because propriety is suffocating and yes. it, it makes you slightly insane. Mm-hmm. And even Utterson was, like you said, he's the same standing. Mm-hmm. He's alone. He goes back to his own house and it's yes. D and, and then uh, he went to, yeah, the other friend, starts with an L, went over there and was admitted in and he was also eating dinner but not with anyone, right? Yeah. That, that one night. Yeah, they're all alone. Yeah. Really lonely, actually. Yeah. And so Jekyll's goal might simply be just not be alone anymore, which is a yes. very a valid sort of thing to be yeah doing. it's like i want to have i want to be around people and i also I don't want to be people. judged for yeah. the people i want to be doing around. something yeah i want to go out i want to go out and not be yeah. stuck home and <laughs> yeah and it'd, be, it'd be nice to be around people yeah rather than eating by myself which is the thing that it's a very obviously this is not uh, what victorian households yeah households were, were like yeah but there was a very serious sort of social divide between men and women in a way that we we don't we couldn't comprehend that exactly so uh, men would like husbands and fathers would leave home go to their private club and hang out with other men Mm -hmm. most of the time while the women stayed at home with their children Mm -hmm. and so like their opportunities for socialization between sexes is very limited uh if you're not already married to the person and even then even married couples you know had separate rooms, slept in different beds, didn't actually spend that much time to each other, with each other. So there's this whole sort of culture of isolating yourself from other people in the Victorian period, especially for men. Yeah. That it's a way it's a way of making sure that you're not doing bad things, like it's a way of making sure you're not having a bunch of sex with a bunch of random people. Alibis. But it's also yeah, exactly. But it's also sort of a way of it's the same rigid, upright masculinity that is often required now of today's people. Where it's like you can't show emotion, you can't actually have really close friendships. Those will, you know, make you less of a man. So you have to no crying. Yeah, all of those sorts of things uh, are a function of the same Victorian impulse to keep the manliness in, make sure that you're staying upright and serious the whole time. Yeah, yeah. It, even um, even though Utterson likes what is it? His description, like, he likes the theater, but he hasn't been in 20 years. Yes. He drinks wine at other people's home, but when he gets to his house, he just drinks gin, so he just, so he doesn't get a taste for good wine. Mm. Like, he enjoys nice things, but he's not allowed to luxuriate in them. Ah, uh, that's so, what I was going to say. It seems like society, you know, humans want to do things that are fun, you know? We yes. want to drink and get, you know... A little bit drunk and party and because 
it uh, uh, lowers our inhibitions so then mm -hmm. we can dance and sing like crazy and nobody's exactly. gonna like judge us because we're all a little bit inebriated at this party so right. we're all just having fun we're dancing with whomever we want and it's not gonna say oh they are going to get married right. we're just dancing who cares yes. and then so right. so everybody humans would like to do that but with these boxes of hierarchy and social status they're like, oh, we can't do that because, and we can't do that, and we can't do that because, and then, yeah, they're limiting and sectioning, yeah. and, and everybody's like, but I want to do that. And so they yeah. look down on the lower class and say, they are terrible. And then secretly they're like, because I, I want to be them. Yeah. I want to do that. I want to go hang out with those people. Yeah. Because those inhibitions, the human inhibitions or the social inhibitions are the things that are keeping the Victorian society together. At least that's the idea. Yes. Is if if you allow the upper classes or the people in charge to have fun, then that means that the people below them are gonna behave even worse than they do now. Like, imagine they're already super bad now. Imagine how bad they're going to be if we don't, you know, hold up Britannia and be really yeah. mean and stern all the time. So uh, if they're already they're already raping and murdering now, how much worse is it going to be if we? we decide to have a glass of wine after dinner. Like, kind of. It's the same sort of slippery slope argument that, you know, eventually leads to Hyde growing and becoming more evil. Is yes. Once you get one little crack in the system, the whole thing starts to crumble. And that's the thing that all Victorians are terrified of that happening. Wow. Like, okay. so, when you say all Victorians, do you mean... Mm -hmm like the upper crust or literally all the way down to the people who are considered bad and criminal and lower class yeah. so i mean you have the working class you have the people below the working class so criminals prostitutes mm -hmm. those sorts of people you have the middle class who is really the people in charge now we no longer have the sort of, we still have you know earls and counts and the queen obviously but they don't have the same sort of political power they used to really they just have land titles sometimes money they have yes. two of those three, probably. Yes. Well, the middle class has all the money. And the middle class is only in charge now because they have a bunch of money. And the reason they think they have a bunch of money is because they've been, like, Protestant work ethic, constantly nose yes. to the grindstone, up at six when the sun comes up, and in bed when the sun goes down. Mm -hmm. And that's a, a myth-making thing about Victorian Britain. So in America, we have our American frontier myth where we all pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and build seven log cabins and whatever else. Yeah. Uh, in Victorian Britain, it's about going to work nine to five every day and then church on Sundays. And you have to do that over and over and over again to maintain the money because the money is the thing that's going to maintain the political power, which is allowing you to be, you know, to own the world. Because right now, yeah. Victorian Empire is the biggest empire in the world. And we want to own the world because we want things like coffee, sugar, cotton, yes. all the things that come with it. So all the material goods that come with owning the world. And so we can we can never slack off. The instant we slack off, the middle classes slack off, everything else starts to fall apart. So the middle class is constantly terrified yes. that their version of reality is really tenuous uh, and can crumble almost immediately. And as And there's sort of something to that in the way that in order to run an empire, you have to be constantly running the empire. You can't yeah. ever stop. So in order to keep an empire, you have to constantly be working on it. Um, the instant yes. you stop working on the empire is the point at which the empire starts to crumble. And so the Victorians are afraid that the instant they have any fun, 
that everything's going to start collapsing around them. Yeah. <laughs> that was a much shorter way of saying what I was just saying. So. Okay. Yeah. And, it, and, you know, taking it down to the extremes of like the individual families, you know, one person would run a, a company, right? Mm -hmm. And they would have to be there and they would have to keep people moving and they would have to make sure that things aren't getting stolen and they'd have to make sure that they could sell stuff. And, and so, yes, the English empire had to keep running, but also the guy who was selling the flour wanted to keep selling the flour because that's where his money was. And if he couldn't get the flour yes. to somebody, the other guy who can sell flowers like oh well i'll take it i'll sell you my extra flower and yeah. and then we'll be great buddies and you'll forget about that guy and i'll have twice as much money and then that guy exactly will lose his business yeah so in a place with no social safety net you're literally going without a net the whole time and so yep. one fuck up and you're out <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and so that's so the appeal of being hide hide yes. doesn't have anything to lose no. Hyde doesn't have any money. Hyde doesn't have any social class. Hyde doesn't have a job. So mm -hmm. if he, if somebody thinks that Hyde's a bad person, who cares? He is a bad person. He knows it. It's fine. Yeah. But this has been fun. Yeah, it's been really good. The only thing that I forgot to talk about is Kari. <laughs> so how you know Kari and, and what all... I know Kari because the internet, I think, basically. We met on Twitter a while ago, and then she does her medical humanity stuff, and that's sort of related to my work on the Gothic in sort of tangential kind of way. And then we met on the internet. We became friends via that way. I've guest lectured on Dracula for her class. I'm going to have her come guest lecture at my class, although now she's living in Norway. That might be a little... A little yeah. trickier. Might have to be um, the internet. But yeah. So we're colleagues, basically, and good friends. Last time we got together, we went out to the bar. So nice. Yeah. That kind of thing. That's a good time with Kari. She's fun and lots of energy, as everybody knows from watching the videos and listening to the podcast. So she I was great it. to hear from you. Yeah, yeah. And she gets it. Oh, my gosh. Uh, the web yeah. that you've been talking about and saying that you go down the Strand and research, she's done that, too. And... It's crazy that your guys' webs can be built differently, but yeah. still, like, I don't, I don't know, like, you know, they get different titles, you yes. know? And it's like, wow. That's, yeah. that's cool. So, so we will talk, she and I will have a conversation about Dracula and syphilis, mm. basically. Yes. Because she's got, she's worried about public health and I'm worried about vampires. And we can talk about the same similar things that have two entirely different movements from each other so that the things that i offer her are not the things that she offers me and we can like collaborate in a really and without sort of taking from each other yeah so like we can just sort of mesh in a really nice way so do you guys present each other uh the same books or do you like focus Often on we talk about your own same novels we, we talk okay. about shared victorian stuff yeah. And then the critical things are things that okay. we know the other person doesn't know. So okay. she knows a lot more about medical stuff than I do. So when I say a vampire is a metaphor for syphilis, she can say, okay, well, if you think that, here are the things that you have to know about syphilis in the Victorian period in order to there make that go. case. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah. It's just another sign that humans are multifaceted and we really can't put boxes around anything because then no. you lose humanity so yeah. quickly we're also just a really social species 
right we, yeah human being human being exists in relationship to other human yes. beings it doesn't actually exist by itself that's why that's partly why Jekyll is all fucked up yeah it, that's why it's the human race right uh-huh. Yeah, my thought was that the people wanted to interact with the lower class who were just doing it, even though they were upper class or middle class, like you said, and they couldn't. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, they'd, they'd lose everything. Exactly. Oh, man. Gosh. Yeah, so I don't know if you would like to do this again and hang out and read about more stuff. I would. Okay, cool. Well, then we can For sure. keep chatting and schedule another uh, Victorian parade through the periodicals. And um, is there anything you're producing or, or putting out in the world that people would want to go check out or you would want people to check out? If you'd like to read some of my, my work, I have a chapter in Shirley Jackson, A Companion by Christopher Woofter, who's she's not Victorian, but she is Gothic. Oh. And then I'm currently writing a book which is taking a long, long, long time. Yeah. Uh, and then I teach at the University of Texas Arlington if anyone wants to take a composition class with me. Okay, cool. Yeah. So if they want to go Gothic and literature, then move to Arlington, Texas. <laughs> exactly. I am nice. there. Cool. Sweet. Any other thoughts in general about the Victorian period that like aren't specifically Jekyll and Hyde but are important to you for people to know <laughs> in today's context? I think we're still worried about public versus private in a very serious way. Yeah. So like when we think about, say, social media, Instagram problems, like we, we, we put on a forward facing Jekyll and we are all in and of ourselves a hide of some kind, actually really dangerous and bad for you. Yeah. So one thing to keep in mind, you know, if we were to take something from this book is that to allow yourself to be multifaceted and not be so obsessed with making sure that you look good to the people around you because they yeah. aren't always going to steer you in the right direction. Okay, yeah, that's very important. On that vein, I feel like, you know, Jekyll, like we said, probably shouldn't have focused on evil as the first thing probably he wanted not. to bring out. You know, maybe, maybe it could have been greed or sloth yeah. or... Yes. I mean, gluttony even. Like, like, you can eat a lot of stuff, but whatever. Be a little more, yeah, evil. be a little more slothy. Yeah. Be a little more slothy and a little less evil, and that would yeah. be a better idea. Exactly, yep, yep. Cool. Man, yeah, I loved this session and all the knowledge that I learned, and I had I'm a lot excited of to edit it down. And Yeah, for sure. Tag me and everything. I will, yep, yep. And you can find me on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and Instagram typically under Victorian Periodical Parade. Uh, sometimes it's just Victorian Parade because they have length limits. And you are, like we said, on Twitter as right. Ghosting Danny. That's correct. Okay. Danny, cool. D-A-N-I. Anything on Instagram? Yes, thank you. Uh, not, not really, no. Okay. It, ex it exists, but uh, I think I took a photo once six months ago, and that's basically it. That's what happens. You know, somebody's like, go on Instagram. You've, yeah. you've got a Facebook. It'll just automatically go. And... Okay, cool. Well, Ghosting Danny, cool. thank you for everything. Thanks, Owen. Nice yeah. to meet you. Nice to meet you. Have a great one. Victorian Periodical Parade.